Chapter 11 of Four Day Planet by H. Beam Piper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Four Day Planet, Chapter 11 Darkness and Cold. The next time I woke, Tom Kyvelson was reciting the May Day, May Day incantation into the radio, and his father was asleep. The man who had been praying had started again and nobody seemed to care whether he wasted oxygen or not. It was a theosophist prayer to the spirit guides, and I remembered that Cesario Vieira was a theosophist. Well, maybe there really were spirit guides. If there were, we'd all be finding out before long. I found that I didn't care one hoot which way, and I set that down to oxygen deficiency. Then Glenn Morell broke in on the monotone call for help and the prayer. "'We're done for if we stay down here another hour,' he said. "'Any argument on that?' There wasn't any. Joe Kyvelson opened his eyes and looked around. "'We haven't raised anything at all on the radio,' Morell went on. "'That means nobody's within an hour of reaching us. Am I right?' "'I guess that's about the size of it.' Joe Kyvelson conceded. How close to land are we? The radar isn't getting anything but open water and schools of fish, Abe Clifford said. For all I know, we could be inside Sancir Bay now. Well, then why don't we surface? Morell continued. It's a thousand to one against us, but if we stay here, our chances are precisely one hundred percent negative. What do you think? Joe asked generally. I think Mr. Morell stated it correctly. There is no death, Cesario said. Death is only change, and then more of life. I don't care what you do. What have we got to lose? somebody else asked. We're broke and gambling on credit now. All right, we surface, the skipper said. Everybody grab on to something. We'll take the Niflheim of us slamming around as soon as we're out of the water. We woke up everybody who was sleeping, except the three men who had completely lost consciousness. Those we wrapped up in blankets and tarpaulins, like mummies, and lashed them down. We gathered everything that was loose and made it fast, checked the fastenings of everything else. Then Abdullah Monahan pointed the nose of the boat straight up and gave her everything the engines could put out. Just as we were starting upward, I heard Cesario saying, "'If anybody wants to see me in the next reincarnation, I can tell you one thing. I won't reincarnate again on Fenris.' The headlights only penetrated fifty or sixty feet ahead of us. I could see slashers and claw-beaks and funnel-mouths and gulpers and things like that getting out of our way in a hurry. Then we were out of the water and shooting straight up in the air. It was the other time all over again, doubled in spades, only this time Abdullah didn't try to fight it. He just kept the boat rising. Then it went end over end, again and again. I think most of us blacked out. I'm sure I did, for a while. Finally, more by good luck than good management, he got us turned around with the wind behind us. That lasted for a while, and then we started keyholing again. I could see the instrument panel from where I'd lashed myself fast. It was going completely bughouse. 
Once, out the window in front, I could see jagged mountains ahead. I just shut my eyes and waited for the spirit guides to come and pick up the pieces. When they weren't along, after a few seconds that seemed like half an hour, I opened my eyes again. There were more mountains ahead, and mountains to the right. This'll do it, I thought, and I wondered how long it would take Dad to find out what had happened to us. Cesario had started praying again, and so had Abdullah Monahan, who had just remembered that he had been brought up a Moslem. I hoped he wasn't trying to pray in the direction of Mecca, even allowing that he knew which way Mecca was from Fenris generally. That made me laugh, and then I thought, this is a fine time to be laughing at anything. Then I realized that things were so bad that anything more that happened was funny. I was still laughing when I discovered that the boat had slowed to a crawl, and we were backing in between two high cliffs. Evidently, Abdullah, who had now stopped praying, had gotten enough control of the boat to keep her into the wind and was keeping enough speed forward to yield to it gradually. That would be all right, I thought, if the force of the wind stayed constant, and as soon as I thought of that, it happened. We got into a relative calm. The boat went forward again, and then was tossed up and spun around. Then I saw a mountain slope directly behind us, out the rear window. A moment later I saw rocks and boulders sticking out of it in apparent defiance of gravitation, and then I realized that it was level ground and we were coming down at it backward. That lasted a few seconds, and then we hit stern on, bounced, and hit again. I was conscious up to the third time we hit. The next thing I knew I was hanging from my lashings from the side of the boat, which had become the top, and the headlights and the lights on the control panel were out, and Joe Kyvelson was holding a flashlight while Abe Clifford and Glenn Morell were trying to get me untied and lower me. I also noticed that the air was fresh and very cold. "'Hey, we're down,' I said as though I were telling anybody anything they didn't know. How many are still alive? As far as I know, all of us, Joe said. I think I have a broken arm. I noticed then that he was holding his left arm stiffly at his side. Morel had a big gash on top of his head, and he was mopping blood from his face with his sleeve while he worked. When they got me down, I looked around. Somebody else was playing with a flashlight around at the stern, which was completely smashed. It was a miracle the rocket locker hadn't blown up, but the main miracle was that all, or even any of us, were still alive. We found a couple of lights that could be put on, and we got all of us picked up, and the unconscious revived. One man, Dominic Silverstein, had a broken leg. Joe Kyvelson's arm was, as he suspected, broken. Another man had a fractured wrist, and Abdullah Monahan thought a couple of ribs were broken. The rest of us were in one piece, but all of us were cut and bruised. I felt sore all over. We also found a nuclear electric heater that would work, and got it on. Tom and I rigged some tarpaulins to screen off the ruptured stern and keep out the worst of the cold air. After they got through setting and splinting the broken bones and taping up Abdullah's ribs, Cesario and Morel got some water out of one of the butts 
and started boiling it for coffee. I noticed that Piet Dumont had recovered his pipe and was smoking it, and Joe Kyvelson had his lit. "'Well, where are we?' somebody was asking Abe Clifford. The navigator shook his head. "'The radio's smashed, so's the receiver for the locator, and so's the radio navigational equipment. I can state positively, however, that we are on the north coast of Herman Rauch's land.' Everybody laughed at that, except Morell. I had to explain to him that Herman Rauch's land was the Antarctic continent of Fenris, and hasn't any other coast. "'I'd say we're a good deal west of San Sir Bay,' Cesario Vieira hazarded. "'We can't be east of it, the way we got blown west. I think we must be at least five hundred miles east of it.' "'Don't fool yourself, Cesario.' Joe Kyvelson told him. We could have gotten into a turbulent updraft and been carried to the upper, eastward winds. The altimeter was trying to keep up with the boat and just couldn't, half the time. I don't know where we went. I'll take Abe's estimate and let it go at that. Well, we're up some kind of a fjord, Tom said. I think it branches like a Y, and we're up the left branch, but I won't make a point of that. I can't find anything like that on this map, Abe Clifford said after a while. Joe Kyvelson swore. You ought to know better than that, Abe. You know how thoroughly this coast hasn't been mapped. How much good will it do us to know where we are right now? I asked. If the radio's smashed, we can't give anybody our position. We might be able to fix up the engines and get the boat in the air again after the wind drops, Monahan said. I'll take a look at them and see how badly they've been banged up. With the whole stern open? Hans Kronje asked. We'd freeze stiffer than a gun barrel before we went a hundred miles. Then we can pack the stern full of wet snow and let it freeze instead of us, I suggested. There'll be plenty of snow before the wind goes down. Joe Kyvelson looked at me for a moment. That would work, he said. How soon can you get started on the engines, Abdullah? Right away. I'll need somebody to help me, though. I can't do much the way you have me bandaged up. I think we better send a couple of parties out, Ramon Llewellyn said. We'll have to find a better place to stay than this boat. We don't have all the parkas or line boots, and we have a couple of injured men. This heater won't be enough. In about seventy hours, we'd all freeze to death sitting around it. Somebody mentioned the possibility of finding a cave. "'I doubt it,' Llewellyn said. "'I was on an exploring expedition down here once. This is all igneous rock, mostly granite. There aren't many caves. But there may be some sort of natural shelter, or something we can make into a shelter not too far away. We have two half-ton lifters. We can use them to pile up rocks and build something. Let's make up two parties.' I'll take one, Abe, you take the other. One of us can go up, and the other can go down. We picked parties, trying to get men who had enough clothing and hadn't been too badly banged around in the landing. Tom wanted to go along, but Abdullah insisted that he stay and help with the inspection of the boat's engines. Finally, six of us, Llewellyn, myself, Glenn Morell, Abe Clifford, old Piet Dumont, and another man, 
went out through the broken stern of the boat. We had two portable floodlights, a scout boat carries a lot of equipment, and Llewellyn took the one and Clifford the other. It had begun to snow already, and the wind was coming straight up the narrow ravine into which we had landed, driving it at us. There was a stream between the two walls of rock, swollen by the rains that had come just before the darkness, and the rocks in and beside it were coated with ice. We took one look at it and shook our heads. Any exploring we did would be done without trying to cross that. We stood for a few minutes trying to see through the driving snow, and then we separated, Abe Clifford, Dumont, and the other man going up the stream, and Ramon Llewellyn, Glenn Morell, and I going down. A few hundred yards below the boat, the stream went over a fifty-foot waterfall. We climbed down beside it and found the ravine widening. It was a level beach now, or what had been a beach thousands of years ago. The whole coast of Hermann Rauch's land is sinking in the eastern hemisphere and rising in the western. We turned away from the stream and found that the wind was increasing in strength and coming at us from the left instead of in front. The next thing we knew, we were at the point of the mountain on our right, and we could hear the sea roaring ahead and on both sides of us. Tom had been right about that V-shaped fjord, I thought. We began running into scattered trees now, and when we got around the point of the mountain we entered another valley. Trees, like everything else on Fenris, are considerably different from anything analogous on normal planets. They aren't tall, the biggest not more than fifteen feet high, but they are from six to eight feet thick, with all the branches at the top, sprouting out in all directions and reminding me of pictures of Medusa. The outside bark is a hard shell, which grows during the beginning of our four hot seasons a year. Under that will be more bark, soft and spongy, and this gets more and more dense toward the middle, and then comes the hardwood core, which may be as much as two feet thick. "'One thing, we have firewood,' Morell said, looking at them. "'What'll we cut it with, our knives?' I wanted to know. Oh, we have a sauna cutter on the boat, Ramon Llewellyn said. We can chop these things into thousand-pound chunks and float them to camp with the lifters. We could soak the spongy stuff on the outside with water and let it freeze, and build a hut out of it, too. He looked around, as far as the light penetrated the driving snow. This wouldn't be a bad place to camp. Not if we're going to try to work on the boat, I thought and packing Dominic, with his broken leg, down over that waterfall was something I didn't want to try either. I didn't say anything. Wait till we got back to the boat. It was too cold and windy here to argue, and besides, we didn't know what Abe and his party might have found upstream. End of chapter 11